in February that that month, and I I think I had up to that point. <laughs> February is our anniversary of engagement, so I gave her the ring this month. Long time ago, I was thinking about that. Great is the faithfulness of the Lord to me individually, but I thought most of my life has been with Brenda, and I can say he, he's never let us down, never. We might not understand the twists and turns that our lives have taken from time to time. I think if I had my druthers, I'd pastored one church for 50 years and, and be done with it. But we, uh, we've had a, this is our first, fourth church to be uh, pastoring. And, uh, you know, it just kind of, when you're voted into your first church, eight to zero, it's, it's really good to be unanimously voted on. And, and uh, we did have more people in church. That was just how many voting members we had was eight. And uh, we actually had about 16 people there. But it helps me understand those who are there. And uh, Walter Bowers, who lived, who pastored on the other side of Jacksonville from us at the time we were pastoring there, I don't know how large that church ever got, not very much, but I thought many times, I said, that guy's going to get probably a greater reward than anybody who's on TV preaching. Because he's faithful to pastor those people. He's there. He, he shepherds them. He's devoted to them. He's devoted to the Lord. And who knows how God evaluates us at the end of the way. I think maybe our willingness to do that that has no immediate reward at all but is part of his plan and um, February is a great month for us I'm, I'm I uh, it was a big step for me as a full-time college student a junior at that had a year left to buy an engagement ring but I can tell you this those people who seem to make videos that they open a, a jewelry box in front of someone waiting for them to say yes that's not me I needed to know yes before I went and bought the ring I, I, that that was too big of a step. So I, I need to not have it in writing, but I need to know, you know, if this is it. So uh, God has been so good to us. Dates and times do matter. And uh, we're going to go to Ezekiel's prophecy this morning. I, I've kinda, I didn't know what to title this, but I think I see Ezekiel as caught in the middle. He's caught in the middle of a three-pronged, prophetic group that God brings at the same timetable and that was Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel and it's and it's not by accident that they follow each other in scripture. I mean limitations is also the work of Jeremiah but Jeremiah was at a very critical time in in Judah's history where they were in the fading years of their their existence as a nation and Ezekiel's right in the middle of that he's He's taken off in the second deportation um, as Babylon subjects Judah to more and more pressure. The first deportation was Daniel. Daniel, just a few years before Ezekiel is taken away, Daniel is taken away. And um, Daniel, Daniel wasn't like anything like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The, the, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were kind of really out of the same mold. God even tells them, says, I'm calling you to preach and the people will not like you because they are rebellious people and they're not going to accept your message, but I, I want you to go and preach it anyway. 
And don't be afraid of how they look at you. Don't be afraid of the threats. You just go out and be faithful. Daniel, on the other hand, um, he didn't live among, among the refugees next to the river Kabar. He lived in the palace. He lived in, he was high living. He was in the upper echelons of the government. And he didn't, didn't necessarily preach to the people. He preached to leadership. But kind of Ezekiel's caught in the middle of this triangle. And he's a married man. He gets deported when he's about 26 years of age. When he turns 30, God calls him into the office of prophet, which he was a priest. He even says at the early part of Ezekiel's uh, prophecy that he was a priest. He would not have started his rotation as a priest until he turned 30. He turns 30 in Babylon. Not only does he no longer get have an opportunity to fulfill priesthood, he's called to be a prophet and an unpopular prophet at that. And I'm telling you, when you start reading chapter 1, you talk about imagery and typology and visions. It's just kind of hard to grasp chapter 1. R.C. Sproul says Old Testament scholars are still trying to wrap their minds around what was that all about. But Ezekiel gets to chapter 37, and this is where he begins to talk and preach and describe God's restoration of the people of Judah. Um, These these three men are amazing to me, and I think Ezekiel just kind of, he was a married man. I don't know if he was married when he got deported or he got married after he arrived. He was among the exiles. He was at a refugee camp. This was not a good place to be. This was where all of the undesirables was put by by the Babylonian uh, regime. And here he is. He's camped there. When his wife dies, the Lord tells him, I don't want you showing any remorse about this. I want you just don't weep, don't mourn for her. And it was part of him just calling him to be a, a picture of how the people are. Now, I don't know about you, but that just don't think I'd like to do that. I said, well, you can't be crying about her. I want you just keep a straight face. And, and this is how God calls him. This is how God puts him in a place. And then he has this chapter 37, which is one of the great chapters in Ezekiel. And you've probably read it many times. Right after that is a chapter about Gog and Magog. And that's, that's uh, filled a lot of prophecy books about end time. But let me take you to the very start. Of Ezekiel 37, if you will, with me. Um, It begins this way. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live And I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. He starts off by saying this vision was not something that he had a dream. He said the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, put his hand upon him, and directed him in this vision to a valley of death, of bones, many bones. This this was uh, human bones scattered all over the floor of this valley. And he he was given an up-close and personal It says he took me back and forth. If you're in the King James or Authorized Version, it says roundabout. 
He just kind of took him up close to where he could have this up-close view of these bones, many of them bleached by time and by the sun. And then he asked him a question. Son of man, in reference to you are representing mankind, I want to ask you, can these bones live? And his answer was this, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Now, how many know that's a good answer? That's a really good answer. I don't know if I would have come up with that, but somewhere along the line, Ezekiel's seeing something, and he knows something's up. By this time, he's, a, he's an experienced prophet, and he's not going to go whether with his idea and his estimation, whether it's improbable or impossible or whatever. He just says, you're the only one who knows that. It had to look improbable at best and impossible at worst because he was like, these are really dry bones. Isn't it true that we have to trust God with certain questions like that? That we're, we're not really wanting to say what we think is the outcome. Because it doesn't sound like faith. You know, what is he going to say? Of course they can live. And he probably would have not been honest with that. But he wasn't about to say, you know, doesn't look really promising to me. Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, he didn't go that way. He says, Lord, only you know. And this is what the Lord said in reply to that. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones. Preach to these bones. And say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord, sovereign Lord, says to these bones. And the Lord is telling him, you know, this is not a three or four point sermon. This is like two or three lines. And he says, the Lord told him exactly what to say. And he begins to speak this. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. He's really saying, preach to this impossible scene. This is just bones, human bones scattered about many of them. And he says, I want you to start prophesying to them and telling them one thing. Listen to the word of the Lord. When the Bible says that the word of the Lord is alive, it really means in settings like this, where there's no possibility in, in our evaluation of something coming out of this, He's just willing to say, God, I'm going to tell what you tell me to say. I'm going to preach this word. And in a way, you know, he, he's, a, nat, he's a, a human being. He's a mortal man. God could have, could have God said, I'm gonna, I want you to watch me bring these bones to life. You think the Lord could have said that? I want you to stand over here, and just so you'll know I'm the Lord, you watch this. And I think probably in a, in a way, we almost function in preaching the gospel that way. We just assume that God is going to reach people and, and convict them and bring them to a place of repentance without us. And the Great Commission lets us know that he's not doing it that way. And he wasn't going to do it this, this, that way here. When Jesus said, I have the power to save the world, and I'm not going to really need you. You guys just kind of be good examples. That's not what he said to him. He said, I'm commissioning you to go into all the world 
and preach the gospel to every person that you can preach it to. Those here, those beyond here, and I'll be with you as you do this. But I'm not going to do this for you. Isn't it an amazing thing that the responsibility of taking salvation to the ends of the earth is on our shoulders? He's put that on our shoulders. Can he save them without us? Sure he can. But he's decided not to do it that way. Can he give dreams and visions to people? I personally believe he can do that without any prompting on our part. But I really think that it becomes part of what he does when we actually pray for those people. When we're interceding for the people in unreached people groups. When we're crying out for the Muslims of the world, the Sunni Muslim, the Shia Muslim. When we really have a burden for leadership as evil as the ones in North Korea and China. But when we pray that God will somehow penetrate the inner circle of those men and women and present the gospel to them in some way, I fully believe that he can show up in a vision, in a dream, to Kim Jong-un in North Korea. He did it with Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar was not a good guy. But God gave him dreams. Why? Because it was somewhere in all of that, the purpose of God was going to be fulfilled. And I really believe when we intercede for the nations of the world, we are actually prompting God to do something on the on the wind of our prayer, praying over them and asking God to intervene. And he said, I just want you to preach to these bones, and you don't have to worry about the results. You just preach, and you tell them, here is the word of the Lord. And in the same way, I believe he's given us that same mandate. That we're to preach the word of the Lord. And here's the promises of God. I don't know if if you notice that, he just tells them, you do this, and this is what I'm going to do. In verse 5, he says, and I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. Talking to those bones. I don't know how that must have sound for Ezekiel to step out there in this vision and start preaching to these bones. You bones, listen to me. Listen to the word of the Lord. God is going to put tendons on you and flesh on you, and he's going to cover you with skin. And he says, the breath of God is going to come in you, and you're going to come alive. He will reverse the deadness that's in this valley. He will turn what looks like a horrible scene from a destruction. He's going to turn it around completely. He's going to reverse it all. You know what? That's what the Lord does in salvation. Whatever sin strips away and robs and destroys in your life, he has a way of restoring all of it. He has a way of putting back what the enemy has stolen. And this is rebuilding a nation. This is not like our salvation. This is Judah becoming a nation again. And I like the way this chapter ends. I'm not going to get to that where he tells Ezekiel, take a, a stick and put on the name of that stick Judah and take another stick and put on the name of that Ephraim, put them together and make one stick out of them, and you go around and say, not only is God going to restore Judah, he's going to restore Israel as well, and those 12 tribes will return. Now, that was a powerful prophecy, because Israel hadn't been a country in years. The, tw the, the 10 northern kingdoms, the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom, had not been in existence for years, and yet this was not just a chapter for Judah, it was a chapter for the descendants of Abraham. That God was going to restore them. 
And the promise was, he said, I'm going to rebuild this nation. I'm going to bring them back, and they're going to be stronger than ever before. I'm going to undo what sin and destruction has done in their existence. I'm going to bring them back, and I'm going to bring them back as a whole. And if you look at the last word in this chapter, it is the word forever, that David's going to be a a line of David is going to return as king. This is, this is talking about a very futuristic re, uh, refreshing of Israel and Judah. And God is going to have a descendant of David, which is Jesus, the Messiah. And it's going to all be forever. This is going to be a forever covenant. So verse 7, he says, so I do this. I prophesy as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise. A rattling sound, and bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. He said, I began to preach to them, and this is what happened. There was a rattling sound, a noise. There was a noise. Most of the time, we don't like noise, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't like I, I, don't, I can't take noise. It has to kind of calm down. But I'm telling you, there's been times when we were around here, and you could hear nail gun going off, and you could hear skill saws going on. I'm telling you, that's beautiful noise, right? How many of you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you might not want to hear that next door, but it's when on your property you're hearing the sounds of something being built, something being restored, you can take that noise. Well, this noise was bones coming together, dry bones. You know, we ought to expect some noise when we share the good news. We ought to expect some shaking going on, right? We ought to, we ought to force the issue. I know people say, well, you shouldn't come on force. Well, we ought to force the issue. We ought to be in front of people heading off the cliff saying, the bridge is out. The bridge is out. That's, that's kind of like preaching the gospel is that, Judgment is coming and, and death is coming. And we need to warn you that Jesus is your only hope. If there was a, 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 a title for this chapter is, There is Hope. There is hope to a bunch of refugees living in squalor. And they, they don't have any hope whatsoever. You find this out later on when he quotes what they've been saying. And yet he's given them hope. The word of the Lord gives people hope. The gospel is good news. That it's the gospel of salvation. So we need to make some noise. We need to have some noise going on. We need to see the evidence. You know, it's not just noise. Noise are the sounds that's coming from activity. And the activity is what we want, not the noise. The noise was telling him something was going on in that valley. Bones were starting to respond to the preaching of the Word of God. And then tendon, tendons and uh, muscles and flesh and skin began to cover them. But there they were laying. There was no breath in them. That's the last part of verse 8. I don't know how that must have looked to see all of those bones come together. And all of a sudden, tendons start coming. And here comes flesh and here comes skin. And they're just all laying there. A mass of people laying there. No breath in them. In verse 9 he said, prophesy to the breath. 
This is so interesting because if you, if you have a Bible with footnotes and all of that, it might have in the margin that this word is also translated spirit and wind. It's the word ruach. He said, prophesy to the spirit, prophesy to the wind, prophesy to the breath, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, come, O breath, O spirit, breathe from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet. Come on. (laughs) And what did they look like? They weren't shoppers down at Walmart that had bags over their shoulders. These were armed people. This was an army. It was an army that had been slain in that valley. And he said, breath entered them. They came to life and he stood up standing. Don't you know they were glad to be standing? The bodies were restored in appearance only when they were still laying on the bottom of that valley. And I think sometimes, but, but when they heard the word of the Lord, breath came in. And when he preached to the spirit, to the Ruach of God, Come from the four winds, O Spirit of God. Come into them. And when that happened, they stood up as a mighty army. Boy, may God breathe into us so that we'll have a new refreshing of our strength and determination. I'm afraid that sometimes the church has traded the preaching of the gospel for um, social services. Let's get rid of poverty. I don't, I don't know how many times I've heard that. You know what? You're going to have to talk to Jesus about that. Because if you can do that, then he's wrong. You just have to tell him he's wrong. Because what did he say about the poor? You'll always have the poor. Why will you always have the poor? Well, if you're following poverty, and this is not true of all people who are in poverty, but it says lazy people are going to be poor. That, that, that's, I'm not telling you that. That's what Proverbs tells you. And that sometimes poverty is self-inflicted because of how people live their life and what they focus on and the decisions they make. I just, I just recently, this is not even in my notes. These things kind of come to me like this, and, I, and probably I shouldn't even say it. But just heard that it's been reintroduced in our Alabama legislature for a lottery and casinos to be scattered about in the state of Alabama and I said that's what we need we just need more gambling we need more people losing their paycheck we need more people in the food line because they spent what they had on lottery tickets and I'm like what is wrong with us when we think gambling is a source of income to someone it is a destructive device and yet it's kind of presented as this is and and there's people who are spending money that they should be spending on groceries on lottery tickets. There's no social services that can stop that. The only thing that can intervene is the word of the Lord. Sin is an intentional rejection of, of the lordship of Christ. And sometimes we have people who just want Give me me $20. Don't tell me how to live my life. Don't preach to me. I'm not going to come to church. I'm going to come at the end of the church service so that you'll just be glad to get rid of me and give me some money so that I can leave you alone. 
And maybe I shouldn't be saying that, but I'm telling you, that's the reality that we live in. That we live in a culture where people just want social surgery. And God help us not to be a church that's just another social service. And I know how people think, and I know what they say. You gotta, people have got to know that you love them and that you care about them before they care about what you say or think. But when we reinforce in their minds that the church is just another social service, we have violated the calling of God upon us to be preaching the good news of Jesus, that he died on the cross, was raised from the dead, so that you can be free of the dominance of sin in your life. There's no breath in them. There was no breath. They looked normal. They looked healthy, but they were dead. There's no life in them. And that's how people are walking the face of the earth. They, they look like they're alive because they're physically alive, but they're spiritually dead. They have no idea of, of the power of God and the joy of salvation and the incredible move of the Holy Spirit in their life to awaken them to the reality that Jesus paid all their debt and, and nothing is impossible with him. They stood up a vast army. And here's the summary, and I'll finish up with this. These are the last verses in this part of the section. There's two sections of this chapter. The other section has to do with those two sticks, which is really interesting. I love it. Here's verse 11. Follow this with me as we summarize it, and then we'll finish up. Then the Lord said to him this, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. And someone has asked me, well, what, what are things, what is, when we see things, what is it really representing? I just encourage them, keep reading, because usually the Bible interprets itself. And no matter what people want to call about the dry bones, he tells them what the dry bones are about. These are the people of Israel. These are the people that I've judged. These are the people who are living in tents out there next to the Kabar River in squalor. And destitute and hopeless. This is, this is a chapter of hope because he tells Ezekiel as he's writing this, this is the people of Israel. I'm showing you a vision of the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Is that why the Lord showed him a valley full of dry bones? This is a vision. This was not a real life situation he, he was seeing this in a vision but he says the vision applies to what the people think about their lives they think all hope is gone we'll never get back to the land that God promised us therefore prophesy and say to them preach to them preach to them this is what the sovereign Lord says my people I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them I will bring you back to the land of Israel. This was the interpretation of what was going on in that valley of dry bones. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, the sovereign one. When I open your graves and bring you up from them. I want to tell you, it's as much a miracle for us to be born again as for that to happen in that valley. Because we were dead in trespasses and sin, we could not have any way saved ourselves or redeemed ourselves or done enough for God to say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm just, I like your effort. And because you're trying, 
I'm just going to go ahead and save you because you're trying so hard. None of that works because it's all of grace. And he said, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, the sovereign one, Yahweh, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. You know, Ezekiel had to endure the, the harshness of people who dismissed his preaching and and they, they didn't like him. They didn't like what he was saying early on. He, his first part of Ezekiel is all about God's judgment on this people and their, their idolatry and they're in the place they're in because of their sin. And then he gives all of these uh, limitations on different nations that God was going to judge all the nations. But the last part of Ezekiel's ministry is he's telling them about the restoration of the Lord, that he's going to restore the nation. Looking back is sometimes helpful, but it's not a place you need to live. Looking forward is where we need to say, Lord, what do you want to do in my life? What do you have for me? Well, I've lived most of my life, but I can tell you what, we need to be looking forward to what God has for us in 2021 and not relive the fear of 2020. We don't need to keep looking back to 2020. People ought to let 2020 be in the past. Hallelujah. That is, in more ways than one, people need to do that. Amen. You let go of November of 2020, of December of 2020. We're in February of 2021, and God wants us looking forward, not backward. Amen. I will settle you in my own land. You know, and the praise team can come up. I'll, I'll just mention this. I mentioned last week about Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, uh, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Do you realize that Jeremiah sent that letter one year before he called Ezekiel to be a prophet. Ezekiel heard that letter being read throughout the exiles. He was there. They all knew each other. In fact, Ezekiel mentions Daniel twice by name. He knew him, but Daniel lived on the other side of Babylon with hors d'oeuvres and, I don't know, steak or whatever. Here's poor Ezekiel out here among the exiles. But he heard Jeremiah's letter. Settled down, but he knew what was coming. God has hope. Jeremiah's letter was like, quit saying that this is going to be short-lived. It's not going to be short-lived, but it's going to be short-lived. Seventy years short-lived. But I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back. Maybe you're kind of like some of what they were saying. I've missed my opportunities, Lord. I don't know if you'll ever give me another chance again. But he wants to renew your hope. He wants to renew your faith. You know what you need to do? You need to become the preacher. You know, he told Ezekiel, Preach. Preach to those bones. 
I, I don't know what uh, corpse is laying around in your life that you think can never get past. But maybe you need to start preaching to it. God, restore it. The word of the Lord says there's hope. Great is the faithfulness of the Lord. He's never let us down. He's never let us down. I want you to stand with me as we sing this. I want you to let the Lord direct you to something that you have struggled to get past. Maybe a wound in your life. Healing that needs to take place in the depths of your soul. Lord, may you take us to those places where we have uttered the words. There's no hope there. There's no hope of that turning around, Lord. And forgive us for leaving out of that equation the power of your word to restore, to bring back what we thought was gone. An opportunity that will be never again resurfaced in our lives. Lord, may you, may we prophesy over that part of our lives the word of the Lord. Great is your faithfulness to us, Lord. And if you want to come and kneel at this altar and lay the deadness down, lay your broken hope down and just let God restore you. Let's take a few minutes to see what the Lord will do. Let's watch and listen for the noise of what He's going to do in our hearts this morning.